Welcome to the New Models Podcast, Tentacular Edition. This episode, which features artist and writer Mariam Ghani and editorial director of iBeam, Marissa Masria Katz, is the first in a multi-part series New Models recorded during Madrid's Tentacular Festival at the end of 2019. Curated by Julia Kagansky and Jose Luis de Vincente for Matadero Madrid, Tentacular is an annual event that examines the technocultural forces that shape our world. This year's theme was extremophilia, focusing on the tendency toward extremes reflected in both contemporary culture and our material reality. In the following discussion, New Models speaks with Ghani and Masria Katz about Ghani's forthcoming essay film, Dis-Ease, which considers how the metaphors we use to speak about illness and contagion affect the way we prepare and respond to epidemics and treat those who are afflicted by sickness. This conversation was recorded before the global emergence of COVID-19, but it is all the more relevant today. Welcome to New Models Podcast Tentacular Series. We are here with Mariam Ghani and Marissa Madria Katz. Hi, I'm Marissa Madria Katz. I'm the editorial director of the IBM Center for the Future of Journalism. IBEAM is a center for art and technology that's based in Brooklyn, New York. We've been around for 20 years. At the core, we have a residency program, uh, and then there's the journalism program, which supports artists working with major news publications on creating pieces. And I'm Mariam Ghani. I'm an artist, writer, and filmmaker. I'm based in Brooklyn, and I also teach at Bennington College in Vermont. And I make art, I make films, I run a production company called Indexical Films, uh, and I write uh, critical essays and various kinds of texts okay. as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe as a way of beginning here, because Mariam yeah. is showing an excerpt from a larger work commissioned by Tentacular through iBeam. Could you unpack exactly sure. what we're what we're talking about today and how you guys are working together? Yeah, so it kind of dates back almost a decade ago. I met uh, Mariam through an organization called Creative Time, which is a public art nonprofit based in New York City. Um, I was the editor of a project called Creative Time Reports, which featured artists as journalists on the news around the world, and basically we would take the pieces and we would co-publish with publications like The Guardian or New York Review of Books or Al Jazeera, The Intercept. And so together we collaborated for many years. When I left Creative Time, I took on the role at iBeam. And when I launched the journalism program at iBeam, which essentially offers funds to artists to work with newspapers, Mariam was one of those people that I immediately reached out to. And she had been working on the project that's featured in Tentacular right now. Super. And Mariam, can you give us um, an overview of this work and the general theme that it's addressing and how it might fit in with Tentacular's macro theme of extremophilia. Right. So what I'm presenting is a sort of outtake or a particular version made specifically for Tentacular from a larger project, which is actually a feature film called Dis-Ease, an archival essay film about illness and metaphors, contagion and isolation. And it, it does, in fact, take as its initial point of inspiration the, the famous Susan Sontag essay on illness as metaphor. But then it expanded a lot from that initial starting point. And one of the things it looks at is the use of language in medicine and the ways in which the metaphors we use to talk about illnesses affect how we treat people who are sick, how we sort the sick from the well, how we define the public in public health. And in particular, 
we look in this film at what I started to think about as the master metaphor of the war on disease and exactly where that came from historically, how long it's been around, how many languages it crosses, which turned out to be a lot, and how culturally embedded it's become uh, to the point where we don't even think about it as a metaphor anymore. It just like has become completely invisible in language. And what it does in the world, which also turns out to be a lot. It, it does a lot. It operates in a lot of different ways. And one of the ones that I think is most striking is that it really has locked us into a kind of national security paradigm for epidemic response and pandemic planning. And I think this really has led us to ignore or foreclose many other modes of thinking about epidemics and why they occur, why they recur, um, why certain diseases are resurgent now that were thought to be eradicated or controlled, uh, and um, why other diseases uh, are emerging um, and where they're emerging. And, you know, of course, one of the major reasons for all of those things is climate change. And that's not really part of our conversation around epidemics. It's very rarely connected. Um, but in fact, once I really started looking at this, I realized what epidemiologists will tell you when you start having this conversation with them is that the whole world is getting warmer, wetter, and sicker. So it's really incredibly deeply connected, the story of climate change and the story of all these diseases that are recurring, resurging, and emerging. When does the term come from, sorry? It really emerges in the late 19th century uh, in Imperial Germany with the discovery of the tubercle bacillus by Robert Koch. So, you know, I think it's not a coincidence that this happens in Imperial Germany and in this kind of moment of military expansion. Uh, and you see almost at once, as soon as we have this transition from basically miasma theory of illness to the germ theory of illness, immediately you see emerging in caricatures and newspapers, the use of uh, germs to describe uh, aliens crossing borders, invaders crossing borders, anyone you don't want to come into your newly defined nation, right? The nation state also being this kind of solidifying concept, right? Um, anyone you don't want to have crossing your border becomes visually uh, a, a germ. Like almost as soon as germs become a thing, this metaphor becomes a thing. Uh, and it really becomes more and more prominent up to the point where you actually see in Der Sturmer, the, the National Socialist newspaper, there's this incredible, in a horrible way, you know, image where they have all the enemies of National Socialism portrayed as germs under a microscope. Um, yeah. The war on disease, I think, is, uh, of course, it's a really faulty description. I mean, you could wage war against a particular microbe or a particular virus, but we say war on disease, and especially with things like cancer, there, there is no uh, external microbe or germ at work. It's actually from environmental stressors. And I mean, of course, with the inc increase in cancer in the contemporary age or other just lifestyle uh, illnesses, I, I guess, I mean, the war is actually, to eradicate the disease, the war would be waged on your ourselves, right? Yeah, the, to follow that is something that resonated in your talk yesterday was disease as an individual responsibility as opposed to like a systemic, a set of systemic problems which we need to solve on a community, state, 
global level. Maybe can you speak a bit about the neoliberal subject and the ideation of war and disease? Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole category of lifestyle disease is basically invented so that you know, we we don't talk about collective responsibility for diseases, yeah, totally. but rather like place them on individuals, right? Yeah, totally. Um, this idea that, you know, as a smoker, you're responsible for causing your own cancer or that you've done something in your life that, you know, created your illness. This actually, like this whole term of lifestyle disease emerges historically from a moment in the United States when there was a big push from people in uh, public health policy to really start talking about structural inequity in healthcare and environmental factors in um, large scale uh, shifts in health that they were seeing. And this was at the same time as the McCarthy hearings were happening. And there was a huge push from McCarthy and others to get all of the people who were talking about these things out of public policy, like out of government positions. So all of these kinds of epidemiologists were pushed out and anybody who favored this kind of individual risk, individual responsibility model was promoted. And that's when we see this term of lifestyle disease emerge. Much earlier than Thatcherism, actually. Yes, it's actually, it actually predates Thatcherism and neoliberalism as we think about it now. But it becomes very tied up with it because it's really very much embedded in our current um, privatized health insurance system. Uh, right, right. right? Monetize the individual. Exactly. And one of the things I think is really disturbing when you think about it is the idea that it does not benefit in any way a privatized health insurer to take into account environmental factors. Really interesting thing. Yeah, because you know it's your individual risk that they assess in order to figure out what risk pool to put you in. Um, and it's your individual responsibility that they continually try to, you know, it, put on you to make sure that they pay the least amount for your care. Uh, and once you start bringing in things like mm, large-scale cancer clusters because of environmental factors, they are on the hook for those things. Like private insurers actually are responsible for paying for care for sickness that results from large-scale environmental factors, from chemical pollutants, from all of these bigger structural factors. And so it is not in their interest at all for those to be part of our conversation around health. Right. Yeah. Do insurers factor in the area that you live in and those things at all? I actually am not sure about that. I think they do if there's an area that is known to be um, and has been known for a long time to be part of a a cancer cluster, for example. Um, So if there's like at least 20 years of data on a cancer cluster, then I think insurers are bound to take it into account. I'd like to learn a little more about cancer clusters, actually, Mm. because that's a new term for me. I assume it's uh, an area where there's high cancer rates for some uh, environmental factor that's not quite defined or... Well, sometimes it is very defined, but it's still been very difficult for the residents of that place to get enough recognition to do something about it. So a good example of this is there's a suburb of St. Louis where all of the basically leftovers or remnants of the Manhattan Project because the uranium for the Manhattan Project was processed in St. Louis when um, everything that was left behind after the processing was actually buried just in the ground in, in a 
in a garbage dump outside St. Louis. Um, and then it has uh, actually seeped into the ground and it has polluted an entire water table and, and a river. And basically there's a whole neighborhood that now has a cancer cluster. And it's pretty clearly defined like what the cause is, where it came from, how long it's been going on because there's a, a, a known date for when the radioactive material was placed there. And still they've had a lot of trouble getting this recognized as the official cause of all of these cancers that have happened in this place. There's another metaphor that you make uh, that you made in your presentation yesterday, which was we talk about fighting breast cancer. We talk about fighting disease as opposed to when you have a psychological case, you are living with a disorder. And in a situation where you have a cancer cluster, they're living with a reality. Mm -hmm. And so it seems wrong to be fighting something that they have to live with regardless. Well, I know that there have already been uh, conversations started especially in the field of cancer treatment around this question of, is there a better way to talk about this than through th this constant language of fighting, battling? Are we winning the fight? Are we you know, losing our battle against it? Because it does put so much onus on the patient uh, to really you know, say, if the cancer comes back, I lost, right? <laughs> somehow, somehow I lost, right? Which is not necessarily like good for the morale of a patient because it isn't necessarily something the patient did personally, individually that made that cancer come back or not come back, right? And I don't know that there has been any real conclusion reached in those conversations yet about what would be a better way to talk about it. I know, I know one person, like personally, I know a person who has lived with cancer for a long time who just describes it as being like mm, enmeshed in a government bureaucracy. Like that's what it's like for her, like being in this constant bureaucratic relationship with something. And I think with uh, other kinds of chronic diseases, I feel like, or with the way that we as a species exist in tandem with a lot of epidemics, I think it may be appropriate to actually talk about co-evolution, coexistence and co-evolution, because that, that's actually what's happening. Like we are co-evolving with diseases constantly. You know, they're adapting to us. We're adapting to them. Um, they kill yeah. us. If well, we all lose, then... change our DNA. Yeah, I mean, viruses, right. And viruses then also, right. You know, we develop antibiotics, they develop antibiotic resistance, you know, we develop treatments, they develop treatment resistance. I mean, there's there's all these different ways in which like we are actually in this kind of relationship and with one, diseases. One of the points mm -hmm. you make is that it's so important to have useful metaphors for talking about these problems because it's only with uh, the right kind of metaphor that we can find the right kind of solution. Maybe we can spend a minute talking about why the archival essay film is so helpful in addressing this problem of mixed metaphors or wrong metaphors. Well, for me, it was a really interesting way to go about it because it allowed me to look at not just metaphors in language and verbal language, but also to really look at the way that um, we've sort of imagined disease in popular culture and the way that contagion has been imagined, for example, as alien invasion, the way that uh, a lot of STDs have been imagined through this kind of like sex equals death uh, imagery, not just in recent AIDS epidemic, but um, imagery around that, which is a lot of that is very striking and crazy, but way back, you know, to this earlier generation of imagery around syphilis, which is, you know, kind of 
a whole uh, series of engravings where you see, you know, women who are actually skeletons who are like, you know, pulling up their skirts and enticing oh men. And it's just, yeah. Um, so there's this whole figuration of like woman equals sex equals death equals like your downfall. And, you know, there's, there's a lot to unpack just in like single images there. And yeah, this idea of really looking for visual metaphor as well as verbal metaphor, which then makes for a much richer uh, exploration of the theme. I also sense that there's a question of morality that can so easily be applied depending on what the metaphor is. And that if we shift the metaphor, suddenly that sort of false facade of a certain moral understanding mm-hmm. then also gets, you can shed it. Well, yes, this idea of the poor being responsible for their own poverty. <laughs> how, does, yeah. how does today's wellness industry and the idea of self-care factor into all of this? Because it feels like we're really inundated with that notion of you can preemptively rid yourself or of disease. You can buy through self-care. You know, that's all. You can heal what, yourself. Yeah, yes. you can heal yourself. It's what yeah. all of you know, what Goop is mm-hmm. like pushing basically day, every day. I mean, but it's it's really problematic. I do think it's quite problematic. I don't think it's totally insane to think that it's helpful to have less stress in your life or to take care of yourself. I don't think it's insane to say self-care is important, but I do think it's not helpful to say that's the only thing you need to do or that that will completely fix whatever problems you have. I think, you know... Uh, when we talk about medicine or we talk about health, we have this way of often looking at only like one part of the picture um, and not and not looking at all of it. And I think you know there's so many things that go on go into making individual health. Um, so there's you know where you grew up, how you grew up, um, how you were cared for while you were growing up. Uh, so there's all the environmental factors that you know, affected you as a child, there's where you live now and what, you know, is in the ground and in the air where you live now. Um, there's like what kind of healthcare you've had access to over the different stages of your life. Um, there's uh, also what kind of healthcare you have access to now. There's like what care you've taken of yourself. Also, that is a small piece of it, but there's so many other factors that come into play there's all the different things you may have been exposed to through where you've been, where you've traveled, where you, I mean, yes. And now, you know, we're also going through this period where diseases we thought we had all acquired a kind of herd immunity to um, because of large scale vaccination. Now we're losing that herd immunity because people are opting out of vaccination. So we're also becoming more vulnerable to those ironically, in places that are like the most industrialized places. Right. <laughs> but also so much of the yeah. self-care seems to reinforce an individuation. I am, and yeah. even the anti-vaxxing movement is, well, for my child, this is just not the right decision. And of course, that yeah. decision for your child is going to infect the school's entire population, right? And so there's a reinforcement. I mean, the, the seeming kind of sickness behind the 
the goop type strategy is that it just reinforces that, you know, if I make personal decisions and I keep a pure space, it is also a sense of purity, a purity contamination. This is toxic. I need something that is cleansing from my body that rids me of toxins. There's still this language that to me seems like, again, a wrong, like a broken metaphor. And it's also about class because, oh, you know, it's yeah. just, I mean, goop is very much about class, obviously, but like a lot of this is about class because... There's this way in which we think like we personally can maintain these little bubbles of health around ourselves, right? And it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing, as you're saying, like our choices, you know, can just keep us safe and we don't have to worry about what everyone else is choosing or doing or caring, how they're caring or not caring for themselves. But, you know, it's been proved over and over again in epidemiology that actually the health of the poorest members of society affect Everybody, And so a great example of this is the study that the Wallaces, Deborah and Roderick Wallace, did on the burning of the Bronx in the 1970s. And so they actually traced the tuberculosis epidemic in the late 80s and early 90s in New York back to the burning of the Bronx in the 70s. Oh my God. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know this, but the burning of the Bronx came about because the Rand Corporation was allowed to run a, a sort of study in New York City in the 70s about what would happen if you reduce the number of fire companies uh, and also change the uh, alarm system uh, oh <laughs> in, in certain neighborhoods. And they, they chose to run it in neighborhoods that were regarded by the city government, city and state government at the time as uh, sacrifice zones. Yes, that is the exact <laughs> language that they used. Uh, and uh, the result of this is predictable enough. A lot of things burned and a lot of buildings that the landlord specifically wanted to burn, burned. And the resulting displacement of population, the, the number of people who were displaced as a result of the fires and the breakdown of community, the breakdown of family structures, the, the incredible tumult that was caused by the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people after the Bronx fires radiated out into so many other neighborhoods where it caused like overcrowding in public housing. It created all these different ripple effects that then led to a, a really uh, noticeable spike in respiratory illnesses all over the city, <laughs> starting in Harlem, starting in the poor neighborhoods of Brooklyn, but then it spread everywhere. And the thing that happened, of course, is that the city didn't recognize it as an epidemic until it actually spread into like Westchester and right, the Upper East Side. And, you know, then it was officially recognized as Sounds like a prelude epidemic. to climate climate change uh, discourse. Yes, you know, fifty these, years later, these patterns repeat themselves. I always come back to this thing that I learned about the plague. That in the century following it, it was a period of what was the end of feudalism. It was a really good time to be working class. There was a labor shortage. There was mobility. So I just wonder: Do you see any other like inadvertent good that can come out of pandemics? Mm. That's an interesting question. I mean, I think. You know, if we started really thinking about pandemics differently, potentially they could create a space for international cooperation that would be very interesting and would be very different than the kinds of cooperation that we have through structures like NATO, right, or even the UN, um, because it would be focused on 
a common or collective good that everyone can really get behind and recognize as a common good, which is not dying. Right? <laughs> That's pretty universal. Right. Yeah. One, one of the, your, your residency with Welcome was, um, there were many artists that were stationed all over the world, and one of them was state, stationed at the World Health Organization, mm-hmm. which seems like it would be the kind of institution that could do what you're advocating right now. Mm-hmm. So what... Yeah, why isn't it? Is, yeah, what's happened? I think that was one of the questions that Plus Theory was really interested in looking at, and I'm very curious to hear the results of their time observing the Situation Room. I think um, one of the things that has happened uh, is that there is some distrust of organizations like the WHO and the CDC in different places. So one example of this is with the Zika epidemic. It happened in an area where the CDC actually had been running an experiment with genetically modified mosquitoes. Uh, And those were not the mosquitoes that were carrying Zika as far as I know, you know, but because those two things happened in the same area, I mean, it really caused a complete loss of trust in the CDC in that part of the world, right? Like, and you can completely understand why. And then around the Ebola epidemic, a lot of things happened around the removal of bodies from their families, which was necessary to prevent the spread of Ebola, but this was not always sufficiently explained. And there is a tradition in a lot of the places where Ebola happened of like, family members washing the dead bodies of their relatives, kissing the dead bodies of their relatives. There's a like real like personal element to the way bodies are buried in the Congo, for example. And when bodies were removed from their families to be burned, like on these kind of collective pyres, like that really created again a lot of distrust of the health organizations that were that were doing this. And I think, you know, these are again patterns that are repeating from much earlier epidemics like around the cholera epidemics in Europe in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries, there were there were giant riots actually. <laughs> so yeah. Epidemics can cause this loss of faith in authority because like authority has to move very fast sometimes and impose things that measures that appear draconian. There's also a politicization of um, vaccines, for instance. So when you look at what happened in Pakistan and this distrust that around people that were going around and some of them were not actually working on behalf of the organizations that were supposed to give out these vaccines. Yeah. So you have a backlash from that. I mean, that's an interesting thing. I don't even know how that happened. Oh, right. You mean when like the CIA basically like sent people out in the guise of vaccinators? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So yeah which is a terrible whole... idea. My God, we thought that was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. And so now you have a, yeah. like a huge, um, mm. yes, swap. all over that region, like the use of the, the use of intelligence agencies of the cover identities of health workers is incredibly problematic. Right. right. Yeah. Like, wow. incredibly problematic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I feel and like we could yeah. follow that thread for <laughs> so long, but since we have limited time, I want to pivot and ask a few questions also about the framework in which this incredibly interesting and useful research is being carried out. You have chosen to place this loosely under the rubric of art. It is clearly journalism also. Marissa, you run an organization that is rooted in art, but you have opened up a sector that is focused on journalism. 
Can you speak for a minute about the decision to expand IBM's focus towards journalism? Well, I might say that I don't think of what Mariam is doing as journalism. Okay, clarify that distinction. Yeah. That's interesting. I think Mariam's practice has journalistic elements, but I, I see this project as very clearly an extension of her practice. So, you know, if you have a, a technocrat or you have a journalist or a bureaucrat who is tasked with thinking about certain things, thinking about populations in certain ways, they are very often restricted by certain rules. You know, with journalism especially, there are certain lines you cannot cross, right? Artists are not held back in that way. An artist, in my opinion, doesn't have all of these rules that they have to adhere to. And so this is why I've always been attracted to how can an artist work in a journalistic space. I want to throw one other element in here, though. I mean, in the time of distributed journalism, anybody with a medium.com page can be a quote, quote, authority of some, some sort. And so we're in an interesting intersection of artistic research. If you said that to me and I didn't know you were coming from an art background, and you were like, yeah, but it's great for people to work without the rules of journalism. You'd go like, holy shit, we end up with our current U.S. president when people say that across the board. So it requires there to be, maybe this reasserts the role of the curator, because you're only going to give that platform to somebody who you feel can do justice to it, but also to somebody who isn't just going to say what your founders or your backers want to say. So I'm I'm a, a journalist. I've been working for 20 years for a lot of different publications, The Times, Economist, uh, Wall Street Journal, Vogue, all of these different publications over the years. Very often I've covered the intersection of culture and conflict zones so when I talk about art uh, coming into the world of journalism, the way that I've dealt with those kinds of very important questions has been to very much understand and in sort of inspect in some ways the practice of the artist to see if I think that they have a formidable voice on the issues that they have been working on. Have they done the work? What does their work look like? Who are they talking to? Um, and then with my previous project, which was actually a publishing platform, we applied the rules that you would have a journalist work with. So for instance, everything that we published was fact-checked and everything was copy-edited and everything went through an extremely rigorous vetting process before we felt comfortable handing it over to the publication. Might I add that most of these publications didn't do the rigorous work that we did. They don't have fact checkers totally. anymore, no. actually. They no don't. Kidding. So like Mariam and I together, you know, worked, I commissioned her to write a piece about Afghanistan in 2014. And what was then the anticipation of the Americans leaving. And she talked about, as so beautifully as she's doing now, um, she talked about a garden in her parents' home and how when you remove and go down and unearth certain layers in the garden, you see sort of different eras within Afghan, Afghan, uh, Afghan's history. You know, and so for me, I felt very confident that someone like Mariam has the uh, ability, the uh, also the writing chops to pull off this beautiful 
quite literary essay, actually. If you know you what I mean. You asked me to write an op-ed, and I wrote a literary essay. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but fiction can sometimes be the best form of journalism yeah. today. But in the you time know, warp. all of these editors that we worked with throughout the the five years that the project, they trusted us, and they trusted us because we were very, you know, we were very clear about the process that we put everybody through in order to make it into the stage of of being published. A lot of artists that have come through iBeam are also within their practice, they are journalists or writing, right, for publications. So the issue around that is that it's very labor intensive. A lot of them also in iBeam land, um, they do a lot of experiments. So you have people who are developing software or apps, or you have you have all different kinds of things over, over the course of the 20 years that we've been around. But like I said, they take a lot of time and they take a lot of money. And a lot of these publications want to work with people like the ones that go through iBeam, but they don't have the funds anymore to do it. So we come in and help support these ambitious, experimental types of projects with newspapers. That's Again, great. That <laughs> sounds like a really good execution of the culture sector, funneling money towards something which is broadly valuable. That's yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, we need more people like Mariam at the table, and it feels to me like she's uninhibited to, to look at things in a way that, like, the researchers that she's been collaborating with are not... Is there any like very specific concrete thing that you've done as an artist that you just could not have done as a journalist? Yeah, well, um, the thing that I always think about in this regard is like one of the ways that I do research for a lot of my projects is if I read it like an, a book that's kind of interesting about history or play something that I'm, I'm researching, uh, sometimes I'll get in touch with the person who wrote it and ask them if there was a story that they couldn't put in the book because they couldn't footnote it. Um, uh. <laughs> and and then I'll say, tell me that story or tell me those stories. Tell me the things that were like too marginal to be included. Tell me the things that like couldn't be backed up enough to be included in like a a written history as we, you know, write them now. And then those are the things that I'm allowed to include. Okay. Right? That's cool. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And then you're sort of co-signing that. You're sort of taking in, I'll take care of this information. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna use it in a thoughtful way. Yeah. And then that's but it's interesting how this all comes back to human networks then and building up trust among certain professional networks and then putting yourself on the line. And it's like even the best publications, the ones that were the gold standard papers of record for a long time, they no longer have that same gravitas. And it's cool that the arts is leveraging itself into this space in this way. I think another example of that is the feature I just made, What We Left Unfinished, which um, was very tricky to make. And one of the reasons it was really tricky to make is that all the people I interviewed weren't telling me the complete story of the time that I was interviewing them about, which is the communist period in Afghanistan, because we haven't really yet reached the point in Afghanistan where people are willing to tell you the complete story of what they did or what happened to them at that time, especially if they were communists, as most of the people I was interviewing were. None of them were even willing to admit that, that they were actually party members. And I'm pretty sure they all were. So it was a film where I had to actually make this entire feature out of conversations with people who I was 
pretty sure were omitting important information. And I think like if I had been trying to make a journalistic documentary, that would not have been possible, right? But because I was trying to do something quite different, which is basically build a film around the things they didn't tell me, which is a really different form of knowledge production. Totally. (laughs) But one that is possible within this kind of space of art, right? And yeah. the time yeah. you need to actually build mm-hmm. that up and make sure you have enough yes. non-material to yeah. make it into something. Also having like six more months to edit because right. that's how long you need to construct a film like that. Yeah. What is the ideal format for accessing your work? Or do you feel quite open about the various ways in which it can circulate? Mm. I mean, I generally do make multiple interfaces to all of my projects because I at one point in my life was a net artist and I do still think about all of my projects as databases. And for this one, there is an actual database in Zotero because I had seven researchers, which is an incredible luxury for any project. Um, And now it's actually eight, Um, but only one of them is really working on it anymore. How can listeners access your work if they weren't at the festival? Yeah, well, I will put a little excerpt from this version of it up online. I will add it to the website, which is mariamgani.com. And um, you can also see a whole description of the work and some images from it there of the work in progress and all of the other kind of things that we that I've done that we referred to are also on the website. It's extremely comprehensive as befits someone who works with archives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The IBEAM Center for the Future of Journalism is, accepts ongoing applications. We have just finished our first year. Um, we've secured funding for the second. Artists can apply for um, anywhere between $500 to $5,000 worth of support, which they can apply to work that they've been commissioned by a publication. The one thing is that the publication does have to be quite big at this stage. Sounds sounds good. Oh yeah, and let me also say we're in a kind of phase, second phase of research on disease, so if you're listening and you happen to know of a really interesting non-Western or informal archive that has material related to illness or metaphors, visual metaphors that might be related to what I have been talking about with this project, please let me know. You can contact me through the website. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you guys so much, Mariam and Marissa. Thank you so much. And we're off to see the rest of the festival. Thanks for listening to this Tentacular edition of the New Models podcast. For more information about the Tentacular Festival, visit tentacular.es. Subscribe to the New Models podcast for more conversations from Tentacular and beyond. If you'd like to become a part of the New Models community with weekly talks and a vibrant Discord server, join us at patreon.com slash newmodels. You can always reach us at desk at newmodels.io and our main aggregation site is newmodels.io. Till next time.